So, we're thinking today about the whole uh, issue of doubt. Uh, the title of this talk, as you would have seen from the notice sheet, is simply this, Unafraid of Doubt. And uh, as you may know, we're in a little mini-series looking into what the Bible says about some of the really tough things that we can experience, either as Christians, as we follow Jesus, or on that road as we come to faith. And the last two weeks, we've been thinking about some things that that come out of our our thinking about prayer. We've been thinking about prayer, and and, and as as we pray, issues can arise. How do we cope when there is silence, or so it seems, to our prayers? How do we live with the kind of questions that hang over us when we're suffering or close to people who are? Today, we're thinking about doubt. Next week, we're thinking about being unafraid to hope. So we're looking forward uh, towards Christmas. Then Alison Smith, one of our global partners, will be uh, teaching us uh, next, next Sunday. It would be great to have her here from Central Asia. Now, some people, and maybe you're one of them, think that uh, doubt is a really terrible thing, especially for Christians. Surely, Christians shouldn't have any kind of doubts whatsoever, should they? We are people, we're supposed to have everything sorted, every I uh, uh, dotted, every T crossed. Because if you had really strong faith, people think, <clears throat> then you could believe anything. Because people see faith, sometimes it's just believing, you know, without any evidence, just having a great deal of will. Whoa, suddenly, I can believe it. Is that really true? Or some people think that Christians ought to have an answer for every, every question. They forget how much mystery there is in life, uh, in the Bible, and in Christian experience as well. These people think that doubt is the opposite, or if you like, the antithesis to faith. If you doubt, then you can't possibly have faith, because faith and doubt, they think, don't go together. What's faith? Well, faith is simply trusting someone or something because it's true or they are trustworthy. It's not just knowing stuff theoretically, but being willing to act upon it. It's true every level of knowledge. You can have a kind of understanding of something, but but you then believe it to be true uh, and you act upon it. So knowledge and faith belong in the same area. Faith isn't some weird and wonderful thing that only exists in the world of religion. We're we're doing it every day of our lives. We're taking things on trust. Don't think, you know, there's an idea that faith is out there and the real world is over there and the two things never come together. Uh, That's not true. Uh, It's not true in most of the world anyway, but it's not even true in the West. We kid ourselves that it's like that. When in fact it isn't, but that's not what I'm here to talk about today. Knowledge and faith belong in the same area. It's, it's, not, it's not the idea that faith is about believing hard in spite of what you know. <laughs> Although sadly, that can sometimes happen in life, in relationships, in all kinds of places. Now, doubt is all about being uncertain. And actually, doubt is often part of the way to knowing, if you think about it. So any idea, any theory, any concept... It's worked kind of on that basis. You start thinking, well, is that true? Ask questions. Hmm, yeah, well, let's see. Let's, you know, if you're a scientist, let's do an experiment. Or if you're a, a, a philosopher, let's work this out logically. Or if you read literary, uh, literature, let's do some kind of analysis or whatever. You start off and think, hmm, is that, yeah, and you, you kind of move along a bit. 
Frequently knowing a person or a truth about anything goes through that kind of process. And indeed, there can be challenges along the way. Um, let me read you a bit of Tolstoy. Uh, his, uh, one of his main characters in the novel Anna Karenina um, is a man called Constantin. Some people think that it was kind of loosely autobiographical. But anyway, this, listen to what he says about Constantin. On the very morning of his wedding, Constantin was filled with a radiant happiness of love. Oh, that's not in there. I put that in there. But his doubting nature suddenly cast a shadow across his joy. But do I know her thoughts, her wishes, her feelings? A voice suddenly whispered. The smile faded from his face, and he grew thoughtful. And all at once, a strange sensation came over him. Fear and doubt possessed him. Doubt of everything. Oh, I was going to say, well, we've all been there. But actually, I hope we haven't, not on our wedding day, but perhaps we have, perhaps we haven't. But, but doubt is kind of around the whole area of knowing or trusting. And doubt has it with it, this idea of being in two places. The actual word, I won't do an analysis of it, but it has this idea of being kind of in dialogue with yourself. Suspended. Up, you use the phrase up in the air, you know, not quite sure. Some people are being hung up about something. It's kind of connected a bit into the idea. There's a wonderful Chinese proverb that talks about doubt as being a man with one foot in two boats, as it were. So you can imagine what that's going to be like. That's not going to end well, is it, if you've ever tried it? Ask Martin or Dan or someone who's been out on the river with Martin at any time, but they can tell you about that. One foot in two, in two boats. Uh, Paul's been there as well. Um, you, know what, you know what that's like. So it's not the opposite of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith or belief with action. No, the opposite of faith is unbelief. Now, doubt can be a path towards that, or indeed a path away from it. I want us to look at Luke chapter 24. It's on page 1060. We're going to be looking at a few Bible passages this morning. I've got no, it's just unplugged. It's just uh, you and I and the Bible and the Holy Spirit, we, we pray, working as we look at God's Word together. So Luke chapter 24, page 1061, and it's on, uh, and I want us to read from there because you see the toughest thing for the disciples ever to believe was that Jesus had come back from the dead that's a that's a biggie isn't it particularly uh, at the beginning look at verse 11 of Luke 24 Um, the the women have been to the tomb and they've seen an angel and they come back and they tell the apostles verse 11 but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense Well, it would be, wouldn't it, really? They'd seen Jesus die. But verse 12 goes on to say, But Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. So to start with, they're just like Thomas in John's Gospel, who missed out on the whole appearance of Jesus on the first uh, resurrection uh, evening, who says, Unless I touch, unless I know, you know, I'm not going to believe. He, he wasn't necessarily doubting. He was, I'm not going to believe it until I know. But in Luke 24, Peter goes and checks it out. He goes and finds out. 
Uh, what he sees leaves him wondering. And then by the end of uh, by chapter, verse 33, there's an incident about two people who, who actually meet Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And they come back, verse 33, return at once to Jerusalem. They find the eleven and those with them assembled together and said, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. They told him what had happened on the way. So more evidence is seen. It's true. Now, this is how faith grows. You may have had that experience in your life. People come to faith this way. Evidence of different kinds. Evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Kind of evidence in history. But also evidence of God working in, in your life or in the lives of people you know. These kind of evidences come together and faith grows. So the disciples are pretty good then, aren't they, after that? Sorted. Everything's fine. Is it? Have a look at Matthew chapter 28. And that's uh, on page, I'll give you. It might come up on the screen, I don't know, but it's good. I think it's good to work these new Bibles, isn't it? You know, get them rustling, get them moving. They, it becomes easy. It's on page 1,000 or 1,001, Matthew 28, verse 16. This is uh, after the resurrection. This is Jesus appearing again to the disciples. They've, they've met before, probably on a number of occasions, since he was raised from the dead. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. There's Jesus standing stark, right, right there, you know, in front of them. Some worship, but some are doubting. What does that word doubting mean? It says they held back. They were a bit kind of hesitant. It's the same word. You only use it, it's only used in one other place in the New Testament. And that's also by Matthew. You don't didn't turn to it. It's on, in chapter 24. No, it's not. It's in chapter 14, if you're making notes. Do you remember that, that occasion when Jesus was walking on the water and he came across in this massive storm and the disciples were terrified and, and uh, Peter says, if it's you, Jesus, I want to come out and join you. And, and, Peter, and Jesus says, yeah, okay, Peter, come and join me. And Peter gets out the boat and walks. You know that story? You know what happens? The Bible says that the, he, the, the wind and the waves kind of distracted him and he began to sink and he said, Lord, help me. I'm, I'm going under it. Jesus picks up. They walked the boat together. Very well-known story. Jesus says to Peter, why didn't you, you didn't have faith? He said, why did you doubt? And again, the word was, why did you hold back? You know, there was that, it was that wobbly moment when Peter, Ooh, you know, and he started to go down under the uh, water. That's the idea. Peter gets scared. So doubt can rob us. It can be part of our path to faith, or it can lead us away from it. Or at least it can rob us of the joy of knowing God. And receiving what he has for us. Jesus told a story, a very well-known story. Um, uh, one of his best, in fact. It's in Luke chapter 8. It's a story about planting seed. You've probably heard of it. It's called Parable of the Sower. We call it that. Actually, I think Jesus called it that as well. That's on page 1037. Shall I read it? Verse 5. A farmer went out to sow his seed as he was scattering the seed. Some fell along the path. It was trampled on. The birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground. And when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. 
Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. Then verse 11. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no roots. They believe for a while, but in the testing time they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. It's about how people hear what Jesus has to say to us. The word of God is like a seed, Jesus says. Four people hear it in the story. One rejects it outright. It's as if it had just gone on the path and got taken by the birds. Just nothing got in. That was it. It just went. Or they maybe have decided they weren't going to. They didn't want to know. The other three receive it, but two give up. See what happens? One starts fine, says Jesus. There's a lot of joy in their life. It's all great, but there's no root. It doesn't really get right into them. Testing comes along, troubling times, and it's like they've not really understood about God at all. He gave them joy, but they thought that was it. They thought God was for their blessing. Challenging life, testing times. Hey, hey, no, that's not what I signed up for. I'm out of there. I thought God was here to make me happy. And now he hasn't done what I want him to do. That's it. See, those people, it's a kind of doubt that comes in. And it's a, a, we're really vulnerable to this as we approach faith or in the very early days of responding to God. They've doubted the God they wanted to believe in, but it's got nothing to do with the God who really is there. If you like, their belief was not kind of informed by right truth about God, was it? It's easy to doubt, for doubt to come in that way. Others start well enough, but then there are worries and riches and pleasures. They come along. And these people hadn't grasped that Jesus was to be the Lord of our lives, all of our lives. And we're going to follow him in everything. And if we're following him in everything, that's going to impact our lifestyle. And so things like worries and treasures and joys and etc. are going to kind of start kind of getting in the way or we're going to start thinking Jesus is getting in the way of what we want or what's happening for us and again we can start doubting Jesus and realize actually yeah we started following but we were following the wrong Jesus we weren't following the Jesus of the Bible we were just following something else but there are others those who press on to the end those who take on board the truth as it really is, not as we'd like it to be. And it starts going deep. It starts getting into our hearts, it says. It starts changing us, and it starts changing the world around us, through us. See, we have to see, don't we, that it's possible for doubts to come because we've misunderstood what following Jesus really is, who God is. It means to trust him. And that can easily happen to us in the early days of our, our Christian experience. We don't really understand the gospel, but we're not immune from it later, are we? When temptations, worries, disappointments, testing, weariness, all of those things can, can get us miserable or grumpy with God. 
When actually, what we think he's, he, when he's not doing what we want him to do, when he's not kind of intervening in our, our world, or you know, if things are going right, yeah, God's great, wonderful, hallelujah, praise the Lord, I love you so much, Lord. But oh no, I've lost my job, or this has gone wrong, and oh, I'm sorry, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm, that's not the Christian life I want. It's like that, and that you know. Okay, we may not be as dramatic as that. Certainly, sometimes new Christians do walk away at that point because they don't understand or, or something's gone wrong. But hey, we're, we're not immune for it, are we, in our own hearts? The soil of our hearts, I think, is not static. It can change. We need to cultivate good soil right the way through our lives. So, doubt can hit us like this. And, and it's good to ask yourself, so where are these doubts coming from? These kind of big doubts. But I want to spend much more time, you may be alarmed here, but anyway, see how we go. On the way doubt can hit us when we're much further down the Christian path. Because it can. Look at John the Baptist. I want us to think about John the Baptist. It's in Luke chapter 7. Uh, In fact, that's handy because it's just the previous page. Luke chapter 7. Look at what Jesus says about John the (coughs) Baptist in Luke chapter 7. He talks to the people and says about John the Baptist, they all used to go out and see him in the desert. And he says, what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, Jesus, I tell you, and, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you. You will prepare your way before you. Um, That's a quotation from the Old Testament. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. How about that? To have that kind of commendation from the Lord Jesus. Of all the people who've ever been born, no one is greater than John the Baptist. That's that's an Oscar-winning kind of commendation, isn't it? Okay, look at chapter 7, verse 18. Or 17. There's news about Jesus spreading throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things, calling two of them. He sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What a question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? From John the Baptist. John had seen the Holy Spirit come on Jesus at his baptism. He had heard the voice from heaven. He said of Jesus, uh, he's got to increase, I've got to decrease. He said to people, he's, I baptize with water, this one's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. John's whole life was dedicated to the task of declaring that Jesus is the one to come. 
Even as a fetus in the womb, John the Baptist, you know in the story, had leapt for joy when Mary, the mother of Jesus, with, with, the, with the, the tiny kind of fetus of Jesus in her womb, was in his presence. That is how kind of crucial this is for John. And here he is saying, are you the one to come? Surprising, is it? What had happened to him? Turn a few pages back to Luke chapter 3. This is a bit... Um, could someone get... Steve, do you want a drink? Have you got a drink? Oh, okay. Uh, for chapter 3, verse 18. Sorry, verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod, Herod added this to them all, He locked John up in prison. See, what's happened to John is that he is suffering great injustice. He is overwhelmed and incarcerated by incredible evil. Herod the Tetrarch was kind of in the ISIS school of government, you know. That was what he was like. So what had happened to John? Evil had overwhelmed him. See, doubts can trouble us because of our circumstances. I know this from my own life, and I know it from the privilege of walking with some of you and others who are now with the Lord in glory in times of great suffering. Evil seems to be on top for John. He just, something kind of just comes into his heart. He said, did I make a terrible mistake, he thinks? Or maybe he's thinking, Jesus, why don't you get on with it? You're supposed to be the Messiah. You're supposed to be bringing judgment. I've been prophesying about the, the axe being at the root, you know, that the, the one is coming to baptize with fire. Jesus, what are you doing? Is it really you? Get on with it. Why aren't you doing what I want you to do? And Jesus answers John. Very specifically, did you notice that? He tells John's friends to go back and tell John what they've seen Jesus doing. And he gives it word for word. He doesn't just say, go and tell them what you see. He says, tell them this, 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 and this. And the reason he tells them like this, 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 and this is because if you read, uh, which we don't have time to do, Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 6, you will see promises about the coming Messiah who will do this, 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 and this in exactly that order. And it goes on, those verses in verse 8, go on to talk about a highway, a road is going to be prepared. And because John's big thing was he was the one who was supposed to be preparing the highway. And Jesus is saying to John, it's okay. I am the one. You haven't got it wrong. How does that help John? How does it help us? How can we resist doubt in dark circumstances? I'm going to be really quick. Three ways. And there are more. Friends. John has friends. He's in prison. He shares his doubts with his friends. His friends come and bring the questions to Jesus. Sometimes we just need friends who when we are so imprisoned in our circumstances that we can't even, it seems, get to Jesus, we need friends who will go and ask him for us, if you see what I mean. And there are times in our lives, sometimes when circumstances are so overwhelming that we can hardly even pray friends but asking jesus 
it's okay to express those doubts, as we've seen. That's been the message of the last three weeks. Jesus expressed those doubts as we saw two weeks ago. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says. Listen to the previous things if you missed them online. And the third thing is that that John needs to grasp, and Jesus helps him to grasp this, and that is that that the the picture is bigger than my personal awful, dark, and dreadful circumstances at this point. That's what John saw. You see, John saw because Jesus helped him to see not only that it was part of the plan, not only that it was fulfilling Isaiah, but that actually um, God was working. The program wasn't over just because the circumstances for John were overwhelming. God is bigger than the circumstances and and he is in them and he is beyond them. He is with us, but he's not confined See, Jesus, God was with John in prison. As, uh, you know, God was in it all, but it, God wasn't limited to John's prison cell. He was out there. He was working through Jesus. And sometimes we need to get that idea, that truth, into our hearts, don't we? I want us to go to another place of great pressure, and that's in Matthew 26. So if you could please turn uh, to Matthew 26. So we've seen about doubts can come the early stages of our Christian life. If we basically, we believe, you know, inaccurately, then they can come in. When the, uh, but now we've seen that there are times when doubts come in through overwhelming circumstances. Look at Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And you know what happened. He does it again and comes back and they've fallen asleep and so on. And then he returns a third time, verse 44, to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So here Jesus is praying, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He's praying about his death. Now, doesn't that shock you? What do you think about it? I've kind of got, what? <laughs> Jesus, what? What? What are you praying here? What? what? You know, it, it almost takes your breath away. You know, what happened to Peter when Peter told Jesus on one occasion, Jesus, you don't need to die. No, that's wrong. Peter, Jesus had said, that's Satan speaking through you, Peter. Jesus had, had told the disciples repeatedly he was going to Jerusalem to die. He told a story just, just the previous week or a few days ago about you know, tenants in the vineyard and the son being killed. You know, he, his whole life, he said in early in Matthew 20, I think it's Matthew 20 in Mark 10, he said, oh, the reason I've come is to give my life as a ransom for many. He said, I've actually come in order to give my life. In John 10, he says, I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. He, he's been talking about this moment throughout 
his whole ministry. And here he's saying, is, if it's possible, can you take it away from me? Is this doubt? Well, I'm not going to say whether it is or not. Perhaps if it was, it was for a moment or perhaps an agonizing hour or so. Where has it come from? Well, look at verse 37. Did you notice that? He tells the disciples he's grieved, he's sorrowed, he's troubled. Other gospels talk about him being deeply distressed, being in anguish. When he prays, it's like great drops of blood go dripping to the ground from his sweat. He is in a moment of, of great emotional trauma. And you know, for us, I don't know whether this was the case for Jesus, we don't know, but for us, I do know, doubt can come when we're emotionally overwhelmed. You know, we can have all the reason, the evidence, the logic, the history, everything about being a Christian, all or everything, and, and then emotions can come away and just shove. All of that, they're on the floor. Because emotions are strong. And they can be overwhelming on occasions. Fear, sickness, exhaustion, pressure can touch our faith. Battles of doubt can arise out of those times. And Jesus, in this moment of emotional overwhelming, owns that. He knew what was going on. He knew what was happening to him. That's why he got the disciples with him and tells them and prays. He brings it all to God and he asks others to be with him. What does he do? Do you know the Psalms, often in the Psalms, and Jesus used the Psalms a lot because he would have known them all by heart probably. We sing a song like, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Oh, my soul. Why, why do we sing, oh, my soul? There's a lot of psalms where the, the writer, in prayer, in times of great agony, talks to themselves. He's saying, soul, <laughs> me, all of me, you better bless the Lord. And, it, and Jesus is almost like doing that. He's kind of bringing it to God, and he's telling his soul, he's kind of saying, don't, don't listen to the emotions. And this is a big struggle. It's, this doesn't come easily. Don't let the emotions over, overwhelm you. Listen, soul, to the truth about God. Bring it to him. So he brings it to the Lord as part of his prayer. He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. He speaks that out. He does something like this in John 12, verse 27. A very, a very, very interesting uh, verse, actually, which I won't turn up. But, and again, Jesus, on, on that again, he says to everyone around him, my soul is deeply troubled. Same strong emotional language. This is a bit earlier, possibly the same week. He says, what shall I say? Save me from this hour? Save me from this death? Well, no, I came into the world for this hour. And you hear this kind of inner thing, and, and he, Jesus cries out in prayer, Father, glorify your name. And there's a voice from heaven comes and says, I've glorified it, I'll glorify it again. God responds to that agonizing prayer. As in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says in another gospel, an angel ministers to him. Jesus faces it. Doubt at the end becomes a resolve to move forward and we can all breathe a huge sigh of relief, can't we? Because he goes through with it. How do we face doubt brought on by emotional upheaval? We need to talk to our souls or let other people talk to them. We find the Lord touches us, we bring it to him. We need friends to watch and pray. So circumstances 
can bring out doubt. Emotional tidal waves, these can cause us to doubt. Sometimes suddenly and unexpectedly, and it can particularly come upon us as mature Christians. But like John the Baptist and Jesus, we can push through it to a new place with God. But there's one other way that doubt can come into our lives and paralyze us. And we see that in Luke chapter 24. Again, back to that first resurrection morning. It's verse 36 to 39 of Luke 24, page 1062. So you remember they, they, they back there together. And while they were still standing talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. Does, does a ghost have flesh and bones as you see I have? When he said this, he showed them his feet, hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of fish. And then he gives them. I, I'm not going to go into this because my time has gone, but we could look at this again in more detail. I was only going to say a tiny bit about it anyway. Where am I? Okay, sorry. Huh. I have my notes here. Yeah, sorry. Jesus stands among them. They're terrified. He reassures them. Does that do the trick? Verse 41, they still didn't believe because of joy and amazement. Now, what does that mean? Why wouldn't they believe? Because of joy and amazement. Well, think about what they've been through. They said on the road to Emmaus, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They've just seen him die on a cross. They've just had the most agonizing 48 hours of their lives. They're scarred, they're raw, they're hurting. And now some of them find it difficult to believe because they want it so much. Os Guinness wrote a book, I think it's now out of print, sadly, on doubt. He says this, they preferred the safety of doubt to the risk of disappointment. Some of them may have been thinking, it's okay for Peter, he's had a one-to-one with Jesus. It's okay for those two on the road to Emmaus, but for me, hey, 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 hey. You know, I'm not sure. It's doubt that comes out of the hurt of their previous experience. And we can be like this been very true for me in my life and Jesus wants us to get through that they have to let go of their disappointment they have to realize that it's different now because as Jesus goes on to tell them as he points them to the scriptures that God has been working through it all and you know sometimes we have these wounds that start to define us they become like an idol they become like our precious how brilliant Tolkien was in describing idolatry in The Lord of the Rings and, and the, the, the power of the ring. They define us. You see, they make us special. They make us invisible. They make us secure. And we say, oh, I'm sure God won't bless me. It's fine for you, but he won't bless me. And the reason is because I've been disappointed. I, don't, I daren't go back there again because of this other thing. Maybe some of you recognize that. Doubt through the kind of previous disappointments that you've never resolved, never brought to the Lord. 
And you've stopped, you've, you, you've been kind of prevented from seeing that it's different now, as Jesus tells the disciples, it's different. There's a plan. The scriptures are fulfilled. The Holy Spirit is in your life. There's a whole lot of other things. With that, I'm going to stop. So let's not be afraid of doubt. Let's get our foundations right. Let's not find ourselves doubting the God we like to have or the Jesus that suits us. But be soil that allows God's truth to penetrate our hearts. And Jesus, as he really is, becomes the fixed point in our lives and we can live through troubled times. And when doubt comes through circumstances, through emotional turmoil or through disappointment, let's go through it to find God's help. God's presence and God's perspective again. And let's draw on others. See how friends were so key. Let's draw on others in the church family and let's be those people for others as we phase doubt together. Amen.